So maybe it'll be something we know, maybe it'll be something we don't know, but it's coming. Well, hello there, my friends. Rafi here from The Endgame Investor with this week's Silver Report for Arcadia Economics. And I have a long PowerPoint presentation with some fun articles from Bloomberg and some other stuff. We're going to put it all together. We're going to see what kind of picture we can build. We're going to make a picture of silver and gold. A picture, ah ha ha, a painting of some barbed wire on his eyes. Hey, Junior, come around when you have the real thing on there. I'll squeeze that shit on good and tight for you, okay? It'll be nostalgic and shiny and hopeful. Anyway, I'm getting too poetic here. Let's just jump right into it, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. This week's Silver Report is brought to you by Fortuna Silver Mines, symbol FSM. Do you like fortune? Do you like silver? Do you like mines? Well, Fortuna Silver Mines has all three, and they also have some gold. Let's take a look at their 2023 annual guidance updated as of May 31st, 2023, just two weeks ago. The all-sustaining costs of their major mines. Uh, we see here that for gold, uh, the Lindero mine in Argentina is between 1430 and 1580, comfortably above profitability. Also for the Yaramoco mine, 1550 to 1710 an ounce. Uh, and the Seguela mine, which uh, is the mine that they just took over from Rock Gold when they acquired Rock's Gold last year. Was it last year? A year and a half ago? It was a while ago now. On Ivory Coast, between $880 and $1,080 an ounce. Now, that is almost 100% uh, profit margin. Uh, for the silver mines, we've got the San Jose mine between 14.7 and 16.2, and the Kailoa mine at 19, between 19 and $21. So we see here the pressure really is on silver, less on gold. Uh, because you know, the K Loma mine, uh, you know, up to $21 all in sustaining costs, that's, you know, rubbing against profitability. So we see that as the silver price will rise, then uh, Fortuna will, that the, the pressure will be greatly off Fortuna once that happens and it is going to happen. But in the meantime, they're not in any trouble and they're comfortably profitable on their gold margins. Overall, we have a three to 15% increase in production over 2022. So this is steady, good news, and it's a stable company as it should be. Okay, going right in here. So on the short-term technicals in silver, what do I see uh, in my little tea leaves of open interest here? Well, as you know, I cover this a lot. Open interest is the amount of contracts open. It tends to happen that when open interest is at um, an intermediate high or some kind of high within the past six, year, six months to a year, uh, there is probably going to be some kind of a smash to get that open interest down. And what's going to happen then is that shorts are going to cover and then you're going to clear the area and you're ready for your next leg up. Uh, so once again, you could see that here, there was a, a high in the silver price over here in February, 2023, February this year, and open interest was at an intermediate high over here on this chart. And we headed down from there. And from then on, Right, we see a little short squeeze here where the price went up and open interest went down. That's what we want to see for a nice sustained run, which is what we got from March uh, until uh, around uh, the beginning of May. But here, this is what I'm worried about in terms of the very short term. Again, this doesn't have much bearing on physical silver buyers because as the price goes down, the premiums go up, and we'll get to that later in the chart. Uh, and premiums are still at financial crisis highs. They've been that way since silver squeeze. It's very obvious. So anyway, I'm off topic, but uh, here we have the price kind of like like just a trading range and not really moving much and open interest climbing right back up to uh, 
you know, uh, six month highs, which sh- it tends to tell me or hint to me that we've got a smash down uh, in the weeks ahead, maybe a week or two ahead. Doesn't guarantee that maybe we could have a little bit of a short squeeze instead. But for traders, I'm not sure if the bottom is in yet. So you might want to be careful here. And for physical buyers, there's nothing to do with you. Uh, so I think that the black line is a little bit over that one, but the the uh, the total open interest here is about 154,000, and it's uh, close to 160,000 here, the six month high. So we got to see this number uh, fall down a little bit before traders can get back in. Anyway, with gold's open interest, the story is a little bit better. I think we're around 430,000, which is very near a six month to a one year low. I think it maybe it's a two year low, but that's not this chart. This chart is uh, gold versus commodities, and I've shown this before. We're right on the 200-week moving average. This changes the perspective of what a gold bull market even is, and by extension, a silver bull market. Um, so gold versus commodities versus a production-weighted commodities index, the GNX, right? So in 2008, it did seem like gold was uh, falling during the financial crisis, but we see here that it really wasn't. This is uh, April 2008 when oil hit a high, and this is the peak of the financial crisis. So really, as gold was falling precipitously from about, what was it, 1100 or something to 632, it was almost cut in half, like 40%. It was very scary. But really, in terms of real purchasing power, uh, gold had nearly nearly quadrupled. That's how extreme it was. This 200-week moving average, it does not get broken through to the upside very often, but once it does, it tends to stay there. It tends to stay above the 200-week moving average, which means we could be continuing this leg up. And really, gold versus commodities has been climbing since June 2022 in a pretty steady pace, uh, at least overall, for about a year. Uh, so we're a year into a gold bull market where gold is outperforming other commodities. We're in a you know a deflationary scenario here where the dollar supply is falling, and therefore you would expect that commodities would also fall as the dollar supply falls. But that causes you know inevitably a financial crisis, a banking crisis, or something. And it just depends on what the next trigger is, right? They, they were able to save it with the regional banks, but they won't be able to do that forever. There's going to be another problem coming up anytime now. Uh, I want to get into oil a little bit here to update you on what's going on with the oil supplies at the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, right? It used to be a strategic petroleum reserve for emergencies if there was an embargo or something, but now it's just uh, the Biden administration's way of massaging the oil market and therefore uh, futzing around with the inflation numbers. But anyway, you see here that uh, I think this number here before the latest selling of the SPR uh, was about 379,000. Now we're down to 359 million. Now we're down to 351 million. So they're selling off more barrels now. And we're down to a low that we have not seen since September 1983, all the way back here. And the all-time low is just 200, 250 million barrels. We might get there. And if there's a there's an oil squeeze and and <laughs> the government has to uh, restock the future petroleum reserve, they're gonna have to do it at a premium. I mean, this this is like fuel for oil to really climb once the next leg up begins, and that's really going to uh, increase the CPI numbers that they love so much to massage down. And I want to get into the banking system now. This is what I've been following in the last few weeks on the Endgame Investor in terms of what is happening with the Treasury auctions and where is the money coming to fund it? Where is it coming from? So these two charts uh, illustrate basically that it's probably coming from bank deposits, and I'll explain why. So here we have nearly $1 trillion spent since the debt ceiling was raised, 
right? They can raise money now uh, by selling treasury bills and, and notes and whatever. How much have they spent since June 1st when the debt ceiling was solved, right? So heroically by our responsible and brave leaders in Washington, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so here we see this month, TGA deposits. It means that that's the deposit they put into their bank account at the Fed. $909 billion, almost $1 trillion since June 1st, this month. Uh, and we have withdrawals of $824.8 billion. So they're spending money like mad into the economy and sucking it out. Uh, for, so this chart on the bottom here is reverse repos. This is, again, the money that's not in the banking system. It is outside the banking system, hanging out at the Fed. Too much money was printed during the 2020 printing. And uh, now it's all headed out, hanging out at reverse repos that pay 5.15%. Uh, so in order for money to be attracted from reverse repos to the banking system, the uh, interest rate on bills has to be significantly higher to some arbitrary degree above 5.15%. And right now it's not really that much higher. So we can see here that money isn't really moving much out of reverse repos. It was around 2 point, let's say $2.3 trillion at the beginning of June. And now it's at like 2.15 trillion or something. So it's like 150 billion, but it's not anywhere outside the normal fluctuations of reverse repos for the last year. So it doesn't seem like reverse repos are funding this. So it's probably going to be from the deposits, which I don't have new numbers yet. The latest data we have right now as I'm recording, this is May 31st. So we'll know more next week if the money's actually coming from deposits, in which case the money supply is going to shrink or is already shrinking even more rapidly than it has been, uh, making the ultimate banking crisis, whenever that's going to be, that much sooner it's coming. Nobody knows when. It's frustrating. I know that's all I can say about it. This is a chart I conjured today. I wanted to see, I was looking at the, the falling CPI numbers, uh, right? And yeah, we are having a, a lull, at least in consumer prices, a little bit, and it's not going to last long. It's not going to last much longer if it hasn't already reversed. So I want to look at the difference, the lag between uh, falling housing prices and falling rent prices. So we have here in the blue consumer price index for all urban consumers, shelter and U.S. city average. Shelter costs, shelter inflation, as the uh, Keynesian bean counting number crunchers call it. So uh, and in red, we have the S&P case shelter U.S. national home price index. So basically housing prices in red, rent prices in blue, basically. Uh, so we see here in 1989 to 1991, the lag between when housing prices started to fall and rental inflation uh, hit finally a, a number below where it was when the housing decline started. Uh, that was 27 months in this box, 27 month lag. Uh, here we have a 39 month lag between when housing prices peaked and started to fall and when rental inflation hit uh, a level that was below where it was when the housing price decline started, 39 months. So right now, we are seeing declining housing prices. Obviously, the Case Shiller 20 is now below zero. This is the Case Shiller National, so it's a bit of a different index. But we're seeing, right? We're seeing rental shelter inflation starting to just level off now, 15 months into the decline of housing prices. We've got something like 10 to 20 months left on this thing. Uh, there's, it's not going to be anytime soon. So yeah, the CPI isn't going to see much relief from falling rental prices, even though housing prices are falling pretty fast here. 
It's not going to help the CPI that much more. I want to go back into the registered silver supply just to update you what's going on. Since last week, the registered silver supply for sale against futures contracts has moved precisely nowhere. It's been completely flatlined since I think it's June 7th. It is now June 15th, June 16th. When you're watching this, maybe there was a bit of a movement uh, last night, but it's not going to be that significant. Anyway, we're, we're sitting at just about 5 million ounces above the all-time lows. We'll keep watching this every week for you. And uh, as, as the silver price continues to be low, that encourages the supply to move out of the stockpile. And the more that moves out, the better. I'm going to silver premiums, back in silver premiums. They haven't moved much lately. Right? And uh, this, the news is, pro is off them. We haven't been talking about it much, but I just wanted to remind everyone that despite the fact that uh, silver premiums are not in the news so much right now, they're still at uh, <laughs> financial crisis highs, right? Highs you only see around financial crisis. I drew a, a red line at 30% where we are now, 30.31%. See, that has only been exceeded twice, once during the 2008 financial crisis, once during the 2020 financial crisis, and once during whatever this thing was, um, a blow-off, uh, from a post silver squeeze high, who knows exactly what that was, supply chains, whatever. Um, but you know, we're still there. Like the low that we got to around here, about twenty three percent, was just below where we uh, where we usually get during financial crisis since two thousand eight. So uh, yeah, you can see this either as a premium, but I see it as a discount to futures. Right, the discount that you can get on futures, meaning people are still buying physical because they want money. It's just not in the news right now, and uh, let's keep it going. Now, this chart was put out by Mises.org, uh, one of the articles that came out about um, real wage decline, uh, whatever it was. So here, this chart here, um, this is real wages. It's basically wage growth minus inflation or CPI inflation, not inflation, consumer price inflation, whatever you want to call it. Real wage decline is two times as long for consecutive months as it was during the 2008 recession. When you have real wages declining in consecutive uh, months, right, that create that 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 precedes a recession because you have people with less spending power and then prices have to go down to like uh, match the falling demand. So here we have uh, 27 months or whatever it was. And this is, I think, half that. It's about 12 to 13 months. So the current fall in real wages is twice as long as it was in the months that preceded and led up to the 2008 recession. It's The next one is coming. It's coming. And it might already be here. We'll see when it starts to really pick up. Uh, back to the UK, or not back to the UK. I didn't talk about the UK. To the UK, the United Kingdom, two-year guilt. Now, um, people have been talking about the two-year guilt uh, and the guilt market starting to crack, and it has been. Uh, so we have here, going back to, an, uh, this is the longest chart that's available on uh, trading economics here. Uh, and we're at nearly, I wouldn't call this all-time highs, but these uh, local highs uh, since 2008, right? 4.906. And this was, the, this was the guilt crisis over here, this little peak. We're above that now in the two-year. And I know that the two-year, I don't know exactly how the mortgage market works in the UK, but I know it's tied to the two-year uh, mortgage to the two-year uh, guilt yield somehow. So yeah, uh, UK is really in trouble here. And now the question that we all want to know is what's the next trigger? When is the next little mini crisis or crisis or whatever that tips the Fed into moving into a new direction? 
Uh, well, it looks to me like it's going to be commercial mortgages. Uh, we have here a headline uh, from Bloomberg last week, delinquent office loans at five-year high trouble mortgage, commercial mortgage bond market. We have here a chart that shows that CMBS commercial mortgage-backed securities yields tick up. And how I see this playing out is as follows. Commercial mortgages do not back the dollar. The Fed does not own a significant amount of commercial mortgage-backed securities. They own a significant amount of residential mortgage-backed securities, which back the dollar, but to the tune of about 30%. So the commercial mortgages are owned mostly by regional banks, which have been in big trouble uh, since uh, the Fed stopped printing money, basically, and they got bailed out. But they still own the commercial mortgages and they are severely underwater and something is going to break with them at some point soon. And that could spill over into residential mortgages. And once it spills over into residential mortgages, the Fed's going to have to buy those things uh, and load up even more on the paper crap that backs the dollar. So yeah, we're all waiting for the next trigger. Don't know exactly what it's going to be, but as long as the money supply keeps falling and it is, it is only a matter of time before it hits it's going to be sudden. And you know what? It might even be something that none of us were even looking at or were even aware of, just like in the UK, LDIs, liability-driven, and whatever they were. And it was like, what's that? And in 2008, it was mortgage-backed securities. And everyone was like, what's that? So maybe it'll be something we know. Maybe it'll be something we don't know. But it's coming. In the meantime, keep stacking. And if you enjoyed this video, then sign up for a two-week free trial of The End Game Investor. And you can support Arcade Economics as well. By doing so, or you can become my patron on Patreon where I give a biblical perspective of what is going on in the monetary universe. For now, I'll see you next week. Have a good weekend, everybody, and God bless you all.